Welcome to the Swamplex Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. And I am Boomer. And we are recording in two separate locations over the internet. We meet on this podcast to talk about movies every couple of weeks. Presumably. I mean, it's been a long time since we've actually like run down what we've been watching in our free time. Uh, so we might be a little backlogged here. We kind of are. I have seven films to discuss, dating back to watching on June 12th. And since we're recording this on um unspecified date, that's a little while ago. I would say it's the holiday weekend, but I don't I don't know about you, but I'm not celebrating shit this fucking year. <laughs> so What holiday? Exactly. <laughs> Fuck this place. It's a trash pile. Uh, God bless Weimar America, huh? Hail Satan. What have you been watching lately, Boomer? <laughs> well, I guess I will start off, since I said off mic, I would like for us to close on a specific thing, and it's the worst thing I've seen in years. I guess I will start with what I liked the most and then work my way down. Uh, the Cohen Brothers watch continues apace. Since we last met, we have watched both Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink. Uh, how do you feel about either or both of those? What are your thoughts and feelings? I mean, I think their best two movies total are Barton Fink and Hail Caesar. So I have a very specific niche that I like them in. My favorite, I think their best is Raising Arizona, personally. But I've said that before and could change my mind. Although Barton Fink is great. Um, I like how goopy it is. I like how... I, I, I will also say, so there was an issue with my acquisition of Miller's Crossing. So just like when we watched Raising Arizona and then backtracked and watched Blood Simple, we watched Barton Fink first and then backtracked and watched Miller's Crossing. So my conception of them is not necessarily in the order in which they were created. Although I guess... And the, to perfectly reenact how the Coen brothers made it, I should have watched half of Miller's Crossing and then stopped and watched Barton Fink and then watched the rest of it. Since that's how they, <laughs> they made it. Cause they made, you know, they wrote Barton Fink while running into, um, writer's block issues while working on Miller's Crossing. Did you know that Miller's Crossing was shot in New Orleans? I don't think so. It's, it's been so long since I've seen that. Um, I remember it mostly being like in the woods, <laughs> so I don't see why I would know that. Well, the the poster is in the woods, and the box cover, I guess, are in the woods, and that is where Miller's Crossing is. But most of it takes place in like tenement buildings and offices, and you know, it's a it's a noir film. The stuff that happens in the woods is just where they go out to like you know commit executions and leave the bodies. It it actually takes up. Very little of the runtime. It's just a huge part of the plot. And I thought, when I saw the streetcars in it multiple times, I was like, oh, I guess this is supposed to be San Francisco. Because the sort of composition of the organized crime in the movie is very different from any of the history of organized crime in New Orleans. So it never even occurred to me. And also, whenever I see a movie where everyone's wearing three-piece suits, I assume it's not the South unless they're sweating profusely as I am every time I go outside. But yeah. And what's funny is that within Miller's crossing, there are multiple instances of the police just like openly being bought out by who, whichever mob boss is currently paying their salary. And apparently the Coen brothers at first thought it was funny and then found it completely 
impossible to deal with that while they were shooting, the New Orleans police uh, acted exactly like that, which I guess isn't a surprise to anyone. Yeah, they will tax you to death with little like payouts (laughs) until you are completely bled dry. The New Orleans police were openly soliciting bribes from the Coen brothers during the filming of this movie about corrupt police, at least as part of its, um, well, that's redundant, (laughs) but about the police. Right. um, At least as one of its uh, pillars. Sometimes that works out in our favor, though, because uh, Disney World was supposed to be here. And imagining this city turning into like Orlando and Kissimmee St. James um, makes it sound so much worse than it already is. (laughs) So uh, maybe the bribes um, chasing away some like larger parasites is probably for the best. Maybe so. That's that's me looking at the very like thinnest silver lining possible because otherwise it's fucked. I would love for us to talk about Motors Crossing maybe at length on the podcast at some point. I think it was a very rich text that was very rewarding in many ways. But I think that Barton Fink was more fun. And I will say, I had a very incorrect assumption about what Barton Fink was like before I watched it. In the sense that most of the discussion that I had, uh, or most of the discourse around the film that I had absorbed just from existing as a person who's on film websites without necessarily uh, seeking out information about Barton Fink specifically made me think it was going to be more of a overall supernatural film to the point where about 20 minutes before it ended, I was like, I, I had a completely incorrect assumption about what this movie was like. And then the magical realism stuff starts to happen at the end. And I was like, oh, okay, this is, I thought this was going to be the whole movie like this. I really thought the idea was that Barton Fink was in this, you know, purgatory, like much more explicitly from the beginning, but it's much more metaphorical, at least, at least until it, it gets later in the film. When John Goodman reaches, reaches his full sweaty mania at the climax. And he's like charging down the hall shooting his shotgun and and shouting. One thing I did not know was that John Mahoney was in this movie and I did not know how much I was going to love him. And I guess that he's supposedly playing like, um, who's that? Yes. That he's like basically playing like a version of Faulkner. And to me, he was my favorite part of the film. I'll be completely honest. Every moment that he was on screen, I would, you know how I've often said of Desperate Living that I would watch an entire movie of Mink Stoll screaming out of a window about things that she hates. I hate the Supreme Court. God, she was fucking right, wasn't she? <laughs> um, I would watch an entire movie that was just John Mahoney as this like, 1930s 40s era drunken novelist who has lapsed into having to write for the screen the filthy filthy silver screen i would watch him wander around drunken and shouting for an hour and a half as he says things like assail me at your peril and (laughs) and various other wonderful delightful line readings i guess the problem is because i was Thinking that everything was kind of supposed to be a big metaphor right at the start, I was maybe reading a lot into it. So, you know, at the beginning of the film, when Barton Fink goes into the office of the head of the studio, and it's all very white and palatial and like 
behind him outside there are these sort of like greek columns and like sunlight streaming in and even like a fog i was like okay so this is heaven and the hotel is hell and he has to i don't know blah blah to get to whatever and the movie's not about that or like that at all which is better um i guess i'm saying that like i kind of maybe let Barton Fink be a blind spot for a very long time because I thought it was a different kind of movie than what it was, but it wasn't. And I really enjoyed it. And I would love to recommend it to everyone who is listening to this podcast. It makes sense to me hearing the production history of it being like a writer's block movie. Cause it does kind of have that like Charlie Kaufman, like inside the writer's mind as it unravels feel to it. Yeah. Well. But I, I like it more than most versions of that template i think yeah because it's fun it's so funny it's it's very funny it's very it pokes fun at itself it pokes fun at writing and i think that that's part of it is that like as a writer myself i know i'm not immune to this just like none of us are immune to propaganda but i I think that the most recent example of what i'm going to mention what happened um with the last season of game of thrones when it was became like Oh, suffer the storyteller. Who among us is more fit to recognize and lead than the storyteller? Which, of course, you know, writers are writers. So that's why so many, so much literature and so many texts are about being a creator or about writing. But this one manages to be about that while making fun of how self serious so many writers are you know what was your what was your major in college brandon poetry okay so you do know what i'm gonna (laughs) say because mine was creative writing and so what i will say is when it comes to being completely insufferable people who are writers are the third most obnoxious people that you can meet on a college campus philosophy Oh, no, I would say philosophy less. My num- oh, wow. <laughs> my number one is music performance, and my number two is uh, musical instruction. I didn't um, have those people around as much as when I went to NOCA. Oh, yeah. And there were those like uh, kind of quad spaces where like all the performing arts kids were like very visible. Yeah. Um, and made sure that you heard them singing Rent. Yes. And other things like that. Uh, but then, you know. Right, sitting around the other like poetry and um, fiction kids, it was like, what are we supposed to do to combat this? Like, uh, what what is our space in this public forum? Do you stand on a table and start reciting Byron or something? Like, it's <laughs> not. Uh, there's no equivalent, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess that's all sort of the same general miasma. Maybe we shouldn't be. No, we should. We should be this hard. Um. Yeah, there's there's something about writers. I, I, I won't name names, but there was someone in one of the creative writing classes that I took who, when the professor asked him what his goal was with his writing, it was that he wanted to induce spontaneous vomiting in whoever was reading it. And it was the <laughs> one of the least pretentious things that I ever heard in that class, because at least he had a goal that wasn't like, oh, I want people to feel lightness and transcendency it's like no i want to make them so disgusted that they vomit and i will say that many years later i watched him harass a woman on facebook to define what mansplaining was so he he accomplished his goal (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> moving down the list, I don't know if you knew this, Brandon, but there were Murder, She Wrote TV movies. I did not know, but I'm, I don't feel shocked by this. After the series ended, there were four of them. Uh, the first one is entitled South by Southwest, presumably because it <laughs> mostly takes place on a train. At least it starts out on a train, like North by Northwest. There's a lot of train stuff going on. It has nothing to do with the festival that occurs in a place that I might or might not live for redacted reasons. Angela Lansbury, of course, returns, but it also has uh, Richard Riel or Riley, um, Harriet Sansom Harris and Susan Blomart which are all names that probably mean nothing to you. But if you look up those people on IMDb, you'll be like, oh, right, those people who are in everything. It also has Keith David, which, you know, every time I see something with Keith David in it, I'm like, thank God Keith David is here, except for when he occasionally apparently gets duped into being in one of those like right-wing propaganda uh, films, which has happened a couple of times where I'm like, oh no, Keith, why are you on this poster with Kirk Cameron? What happened? Um, and also Mel Harris is in it. So the plot of this one is that uh, Jessica is on a train and a woman disappears. And then she has to try and figure out what happened. So it, it is very Hitchcockian in that it's sort of similar to North by Northwest with the train element. But there's also elements of The Lady Vanishes. Um, because obviously this woman that she's dining with disappears and then she gets involved with like the FBI and maybe there are things that the lady might have stolen or she might be in the witness protection program and maybe her reasons for being in that are not as above board as we initially thought. I think my favorite thing about this one was watching Angela Lansbury try to play a Game Boy because one of the things... <laughs> One of the things that happens is Mel Harris's character leaves behind a Game Boy in her bag. And of course, that's where, you know, the microfiche or whatever is. It's not microfiche. Um, I, I hope I'm not spoiling this for anyone. These movies are very difficult to find. So by the time you get a hold of it, you'll probably have completely forgotten this plot twist. But of course, the codes that are missing are inside of the Game Boy that then Jessica has to try and get back. But there is a moment where Angela turns it on and she's like, looking at it and pushing the buttons and it's one of the greatest things i've ever seen love to see it love to watch angela lansbury try to play a game boy i'd love it if they made a murder she wrote like fifth tv movie right now with angela lansbury trying to play a switch nothing would make me happier <laughs> i'm shocked to hear that they're not just sitting there and like 280p on youtube like it seems like that's what youtube is for you would think so. And the thing is, the entire series is now on Peacock. So you can watch it for free with commercials. And I, I highly recommend it. If you've got... <laughs> you know that old Mitch Hedberg joke about how rice is great if you want to eat 10,000 of something? <laughs> uh, Murder, She Wrote is great if you want to binge a show that has like 270 episodes. If you're like, I want to, and, and you know what, as far as I can tell, 98% of them are great. I've, I've probably watched about 30 so far, and I'm so glad that I have so much still ahead of me. It, you know, it really is wonderful to think, oh, I've, I've already watched so much and I have so much left to conquer. And I guess the next thing I want to talk about are two movies that are part of a series. I did not watch the first movie in the series which was 
uh, extremely well reviewed, but I have now seen The Conjuring 2 and The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, aka The Conjuring 3, Conjuring Zero. What are your thoughts on this series, Brandon? Have you seen these? I think they're pretty boring. <laughs> like, I feel like uh, maybe when they came out, there was like something fresh about them to other people. But, you know, like that sinister and insidious, I feel like where there's like trio of like mainstream horror is, you know, back. Like it was like uh, maybe what we were saying about Oculus, like there was something like fresh feeling about it at the time after like so many bad mainstream like remakes of horror classics and uh you know the torture porn era was dead finally but like i never really got into any of them i, I don't even know if i've seen the conjuring sequels I, i've definitely seen the first one um i have a masochistic relationship with annabelle the doll where um i keep watching annabelle movies expecting one of them to be good eventually and it just keeps edging me closer and closer to getting there. And um, they are, they're always a bore. <laughs> I don't know why I keep coming back for more punishment with that damn doll. Anyway, no, no enthusiasm for my end. You love those. a haunted doll. You I love really a haunted do. doll. I get it. She doesn't do anything. She just sits there. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. You love a haunted doll. And I, I, I would never take that from you. I, I remember what that time period that you're talking about. Because it was... It was the Conjuring, Insidious, and Sinister. And again, I haven't seen either of those either. And the thing about The Conjuring is I was at least moderately intrigued by it because I love Vera Farmiga. I thought that she was great in Bates Hotel. And I love Patrick Wilson. I don't think I've ever seen a Patrick Wilson performance that I didn't love. And so you have those two powerhouses at the head of the cast. And what might be my favorite actress of all time, Lily Taylor, as sort of the the horrified woman in that one. But I got to tell you the truth. I didn't see it. And I thought that The Conjuring 2 was garbage. Uh, <laughs> my understanding of The Conjuring... Okay, first of all, I don't like the Warrens, okay? Oh, awful people as far as awful historical people. figures go. Yeah, Just Con artists absolutely 100% con artists. And I think that when the movie came out and I first realized it was about them, a fictionalization of their fucking fictional lives. Um, <laughs> sorry, I get so pissed. They took advantage of so many people and they have, you know, all of this nonsense. And that was what turned me off the first time. And I kind of did not have the choice of whether or not I was going to watch Conjuring 2 and 3. It just happened and I was present. Um, I was less present for Conjuring 3, and I think that's a better film, but I don't know if that's really the case or if I just saw less of it. But what my understanding of The Conjuring is, is that they spend, you know, it is a, sort of a more traditional exorcist type story where for a prolonged period of it, nothing supernatural or explicitly supernatural happens. It's a lot of it is like, oh, you know, it's sort of a Scully Mulder. Is it real? Is it not? We have to make sure this is actually real before we do anything kind of story. Is that is that an accurate understanding? Uh, it's been so long. I, I just remember like a haunted house scenario. Okay. Um, and maybe it was like a paranormal investigation in that house. Yeah. But I remember at least by the end, it it's like all bets are off. And, you know, like most great haunted house movies, like, you know, it's just like 18 different kinds of threats that have nothing to do with each other. They're sort of like all whizzing and whirring and beeping and blinking all at the same time, you know? Okay. Yeah. I love haunted house movies for that. Like 
that's the best part of the genre is like when everything's just sort of like out in the open, you know, there's no more investigations or like, is this real or not? And everything's just like going chaos and haywire all at the same time. Yeah. Um, Haosu. Yeah, exactly. Which I'm going to ca- I called it Haosu, but I did, I did read somewhere. Someone once was like, don't call it that unless you're, you know, actually, you actually speak Japanese, which I don't know if that's nonsense gatekeeping anyway, but I also want to make sure that we're distinguishing it from the house, the 80s one. Which, is, yeah. which is also a movie that could just as easily be discussed on this podcast. So, and fits that exact description. Yeah, I mean that one. That one has a plot that at least kind of holds together. It's it there. There's a resolution there. The thing about the 80s house is like, even though it gets crazy and it, and you know it, there's a lot of worrying and 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 you know all of the haunted house accoutrement that you like to see it kind of all gets together at the end. Like it kind of all makes sense um, as to why and, and what and, and the haunting and everything. Unlike Haosu, where it's just like, <laughs> I don't know what's happening and that's fine. <laughs> um, the Conjuring 2, apparently in the first one, or I don't know, I guess at some point, maybe the Warrens went to the Amityville house and supposedly Mrs. Warren, you know, had a vision of like this evil demon and what's funny to me is while I was watching it, because I didn't see the first one, one of the things that's a twist or something that comes up at the end of the movie is that like they need to know the demon, who is the nun from the titular The Conjuring Universe Nun movie, which is a whole a whole other thing that I don't know if we have I saw that one about. in the theater for some fucking reason. <laughs> oh my God, Brandon, why do you hate yourself so much? I'm so bad about generic horror. Like I don't know why it keeps like reeling me in. I did talk myself out of watching The Black Phone this week. Oh, and that one I actually think looks interesting. Maybe. Mm. I feel like it's in the same genre as this, that like that version of like generic horror. I don't know. Is it just because of the presence of Ethan Hawke, like in Sinistor or Insidious, which is... That's definitely part of it. I don't care about that man. Yeah, me either. I, I, I have no... I have no interest. He played the role in Reality Bites too well sorry (laughs) you know that's you now that's you in real life i don't want to see you in anything um so in the second one they go to england because there's like a a a monster in the house or whatever and and, and there's a ghost but the demon using the ghost as a front to try and possess another little girl all of it not very interesting the most interesting thing that happens is there was a real life debunker who was involved and in this and is involved in the story in the movie. And every time she's on screen, I was like, is that Franca Patenta from run Lola run literally every time she was on screen. And then at the end of the movie, uh, when the credits rolled, it was like Franca Patenta. I was like, Oh, that's the most satisfying thing that has happened in this (laughs) entire runtime of this movie. Uh, Didn't care for it. I thought that all of the scares were very funny. I couldn't stop laughing about how seriously it was taking itself really and truly impossible to watch without laughing for me as a person who like loves horror and not necessarily just like jump scares. Uh, and then the conjuring three has a much less star studded cast and is a lower budget and clearly I think was made during COVID. But honestly that one, even though apparently that one was much less well received and I will say there were parts of it that I just stopped paying attention to and went into my imagination to stop being, you know, conjured, <laughs> conjured. 
bombarded. I thought that one was a lot better than The Conjuring 2. Because from what I understand, like I said, the first one is more of a classic exorcism story where there's some question about what's happening. In the second one, there's so they spend so much time before they actually start doing any kind of exorcism. But there's so much spookiness that happens always. You know, Mr. Warren paints the creepy nun and he hangs in, in his creepy den. And so when uh, <laughs> Miss, Mrs. Warren has to go in there later, she's, you know, in the room and is the thing in the painting? Is it behind the painting? And that was one of the few moments of real true tension. So I just want to go ahead and say that there were things that it did correctly. There were genuine moments of terror and horror and tension. But in this two hour and 15 minute movie, two hours and 15 minutes, Brandon. Involving like a court case too, right? No, that's not in this one. That's, oh, okay. That's must be in, confusing with a different movie. That's the devil made me do it. Which that one is is under two hours and is much more tolerable because in that one the whole thing is they're trying to convince, you know, they're trying to convince the court that this guy is not responsible for this murder because he was possessed. Which you know, whatever. But <laughs> it, it has a lot of. It felt much more like an episode of Supernatural, whereas the second one felt like four or five episodes of Baywatch Nights uh, edited into a made-for-TV movie that they would show in a theater. Whereas The Conjuring Three, at least, I'm like, oh, this is going somewhere. They're doing battle with witches. They're finding creepy shit that witches left behind. I'm into that. And uh, John Noble is in it, which is always a plus in my book. So I saw them. I hated them. I hated The Conjuring 3 slightly less, but I cannot give it a full go ahead because I also um, paid attention to it less. (laughs) And I guess to segue over to you, I want to go ahead and talk about something that happened to me on Garfield's birthday. I got morphed. No, I got morbed, and you know what? I don't regret it at all. Okay, it was quite quite possibly one of the worst movies that I have ever seen. I think that's giving it more power than it deserves. <laughs> it's so boring. It's so boring. There's nothing there. Yeah, there are jokes in the trailer that they removed from the movie. Like they like went out of their way to make it less entertaining. Yeah, yeah. Can we just talk about the CGI in this movie? Can we? Okay, so <sighs> I have been hearing for years people being like, oh, the CGI in these superhero movies is getting worse and worse. And to be honest, I haven't noticed it until like the past year. Like when I saw Eternals, I was like, holy shit, how does this look worse than The Flash on the CW? <laughs> like the Eternals. Every every once in a blue moon, Disney starts to like, you know, somebody in over in Florida goes and turns the hand crank that powers up the bots that log on to Twitter and are like, the Eternals was underrated. How could you not say that this wasn't the greatest movie of the Marvel Cinematic Universe? How can you not say this was the most beautiful how can you how can you pretend like this wasn't the one with the deepest story? It's like no, none of it was good. The story was garbage, the acting was questionable, and the visuals were honestly one of the worst things that I had ever seen. It it had the worst effects for a movie of its budget that I had seen until I saw Morbius. 
<laughs> because in the Eternals, there are so many times where it looks, it doesn't even look like, it doesn't even look like people and it doesn't even look like CGI. It looks like the early episodes of Enterprise from 2001, 2002, where they would zoom out and everybody looked like little action figures in a not very realistic diorama. Like that Final Fantasy, the Spirits Within movie, like CGI on that quality, but that wasn't trying to make it look like a person, really. It wasn't trying to trick you into thinking that was happening in reality. It's like, this is an animated movie. Morbius is an animated movie. There were moments where I was looking at it and I was like, okay, Matt Smith looks better with his stupid vampire face than Jared Leto does. Is it because Matt Smith isn't so much of a prima donna that he was like, yeah, sure, put prosthetics on my face? And I was like, maybe that's what's happening, that he's just not wearing dumb prosthetics. Or like, maybe he's wearing real prosthetics and not just like bad, dumb CGI vampire face like Jared Leto, who would no doubt refuse to do that shit. I don't know. I honestly, so boring and bad and just like thoughtless and like, I can't remember the last time that it felt like there were too many screenwriters. You know what I mean? Where it's like, this is seven different movies. None of this them is no one's good. passion project. Yeah. No one but Jared Leto. And what no one seems to understand is that we don't care. He's, <laughs> he is fetch. Jared Leto is fetch. It's over. There was a time right around the time of 10 things I hate about you. Whenever um, they make a joke about how Kat's character in that movie has a picture of Jared Leto in her drawer. That was the last time that you could be like, mm, yeah, Jared Leto, he's a great actor and we wish him well. Everything he has done since then has done nothing but degrade him in the public consciousness. And yet he continues to get work. I don't know if he just has the same agent as Johnny Depp managing his like public disinformation campaign or what, but I hated this movie. I loved it at the same time because of just, just how shitty it was. How does it look worse than Catwoman? It feels like it's from that time, like Catwoman or like Underworld or something like that. Ultraviolet. <laughs> yeah, because there's know. also that element of it trying to be kind of edgy. Well, not kind of. It's trying to be very edgy. It's missing a new metal soundtrack. I was, yeah, sure. we, we, I think we talked about this last time okay. we talked, which is that I've never before in my life said, I think that this movie would benefit from a bad new metal soundtrack. But You're if, 100% correct. If you put the soundtrack for Dracula 2000 to this movie, it would increase, it would make it 20% better. Instead, it tries to have these like actual orchestral stylings up against this backdrop of like, you know, a movie that doesn't feel like it was adapted from a comic. It feels like it was adapted from a PlayStation 1 game that used Jared Leto's likeness just so that whenever they came time to adapt it, they would have him ready to go. I'll have you know that the reason I saw this, and it was opening weekend, is because I had a very sweet coworker who loves him, and she's very COVID conscious, so she rented out an entire theater, and then I guess had to rope in as many people as possible to watch it, um, to make it like financially uh plausible so that she was you know fearful that opening weekend the crowds would just be surging to go see morbius at 10 a.m on a sunday 
Uh, <laughs> and at that screening, I struggled to stay awake at 10 a.m. Yeah. Nothing in my system but like a good night's rest and some caffeine. And I was just like holding on for dear life, trying to like stay awake during the climax. Such a bore. <sighs> what a boring movie. So dull. And that's why like people trying to like retrofit it into a meme just felt so fake. Like, <laughs> I was like, this is not going to take off in any kind of significant lasting way because, like, there's nothing here. There's no- n- nothing to build, like, a foundation of, like, internet culture on. It's just, like, quicksand. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> well, I think that we've <laughs> said what we wanted to say about Morbius. I'm going to hand it off to you. I know that you saw a bunch of stuff and you published a bunch of stuff, but is there anything in particular you want to talk about or that you've been watching? I could do a trio of new releases that are all sci-fi that I thought were like some of the best things I've seen recently. I'm going to go reverse order from you. Things I liked more and more. After Yang is one that I think you would enjoy. Okay. It's from Koganada. It's a second film after Columbus, which was not (laughs) sci-fi. And this one feels in that like Marjorie Prime kind of vein. It's all very hushed and... um, reverent like meditations on like what the boundaries between human thought and like ai simulation of that is colin farrell stars as this like dad in the near future uh who adopts a chinese girl with his wife and because they're not fully attentive parents and because they're like culturally alienated from her birthplace they um purchase this ai babysitter called yang who um feeds his daughter uh chinese fun facts uh to like give her this like cultural anchor back to like where she's like physically from i have seen trailers for this yes go on and as the uh title after yang implies uh the ai member of the family dies pretty early on like he just stops functioning and for the first half hour i was like really thrilled about where it was going like He has, uh, Colin Farrell has this, like, sort of conservative paranoia about AI members of society and also, like, clones. And he's, like, this sort of, like, back-to-basics kind of guy. He, like, makes authentic teas in a world where everyone likes to make tea from, like, crystals, you know? He's really, like, trying to, like, ground himself in, like, an old-world authenticity, uh, which extends to how he thinks about, like, new forms of life. Um, So he brings in this, you know, member of his family who has, like, been decommissioned uh, and has, like, these very shady backroom figures, like, break into its memory banks to, like, make sure that, you know, basically this isn't, like, spyware that's going to be, like, tapped into by the company that sold it to him. And it turns out that the things that are, like, stored in Yang's memories are not that sinister, like... I'd say the last hour of the film stops being this like paranoid thriller about what these AI figures are doing in our home. You know, like that's sort of like Siri Alexa concern that like there's like spyware in our homes. It like shifts from that to like thinking about like what an artificial person (laughs) would hold as their own memories, like beyond their service to the family. What is their inner life? And, uh, Honestly, I wasn't as thrilled with that last hour, but I think if anyone, if you have like a, an affection for that kind of quiet, heady sci-fi where you start like prodding at philosophical questions about like the borders between humanity and like 
alternate versions of what a person is. Uh, I don't know. It was very thoughtful and oddly kind of sweet, even though it's very melancholic. Remind me of your thoughts about Marjorie Prime. I like it. It's not my favorite mode of sci-fi. Is this sort of in the same realm, though? Because it kind of sounds like it. Okay. I'd say if you're a fan of Marjorie Prime, this one's also worth a look. It's a little harder to get your hands on if you don't have Showtime, though, because it's just streaming there. Uh, Otherwise, you have to pay for it. Um, Mm. But I I got a copy through the library, and I I have no regrets watching it. I thought it was very thoughtful um, and, like, well-considered. It's just even, like, uh, this mode of, like, Colin Farrell, almost every dramatic role he's had past The Lobster has been him in this, like, kind of quiet, reflective, like, gravelly voice, grumbly kind of character. And it's never my favorite. Like, I don't think subtle and quiet are ever, like, my go-to mode, you know? <laughs> so any, like, re- reservations I have about about it are, like, all personal taste and not, like, what the movie's doing. Right. I did like this movie Gagarin a little better. Um, my French is non-existent, so I'm most likely mispronouncing that. But it's named after Yuri Gagarin, who um, was a Russian cosmonaut and the first person to travel in space. I guess a Soviet cosmonaut is a more accurate phrasing. It's named after him and named after this real-life Parisian housing block, like a housing project that was demolished in the last two years. Mm. The housing project was funded by the Communist Party of France in real life. Okay. And it's basically, it had like kind of two purposes. One was like, you know, functionally just to like house people with lower income the way all housing projects are, but also it was this like shining beacon of like what communism can do for like modern urbanites. Right. Um, and they invited the real life Yuri G to attend the like opening of the f- housing project in real life Oh wow! as like just a commemoration and like uh, to like sort of spark imagination, like, you know, how far communism could take us like to space. And the movie Gagarin uses so much archival footage of that inauguration and like the early years of this beautiful building and you know the community that has inhabited it in the deck like half century since it was erected in the in the 60s but also half of it is like an actual drama about these like teens who lived in the housing project like in the final years that it existed and basically the two directors interviewed a bunch of people as they were living there and just got like a sense of the community and what the place meant to them and started filming, I believe as it was being marked for demolition. So like the place no longer exists. This movie's kind of like the final document of it. And the central character, his name is Yuri. He's named after the cosmonaut and he's the last person left. Like everyone else has been pushed out of the move out of the, um, housing structure by the government um because it's been deemed like you know unsafe against like health standards of like government housing yeah and uh his plan is to remain there until it no longer exists and he basically like retrofits the building with like all these like analog equipment that he um pulls out of like the dump and uh basically turns it into a one-man spaceship (laughs) so like uh Half of it is this very, like, almost documentary, realist, real-life record of this place. And then the other half is this sort of, like, wide-eyed, big-hearted, like, teen 
imagination about like that's cute i'm into that yeah it, I, I almost want to call it twee but i know that turns a lot of people off but it feels like that kind of like big-hearted like diy like almost michelle gondry style imagination of what you can do with the space like just transforming it and like just not having such a defeatist attitude about everything like i think that's why it's really cool that like the building was named after that cosmonaut and like it's branding was supposed to inspire like hopeful thoughts of like what the future can bring and like i I don't know that's really lost in like leftist politics now like everything is so defeatist and um you know basically just what's the hope what's the plan you know yeah every everything is disaster mitigation none of it yeah exactly yeah except for um you know offering another 15 20 dollars to the nancy pelosi email that rolls into your uh gmail oh i thought you said i thought i'm sorry i thought you said leftist (laughs) that's what i'm saying like that like what is on offer like right now i don't know legitimately nothing because nothing (laughs) we live in a uniparty system and yet somehow every day i log on to twitter and someone else is like impeach biden it's like for what for rolling over and showing his soft belly anytime a fascist asks for something that's what you want to impeach him for you in the right wing i'm not in a cult people are like well, why aren't there any okay first of all biden sucks i'm not this is not a defense of biden just to clarify he's truly the morbius of presidents there's just nothing there yeah <laughs> you know it's like oh he's gonna be like roosevelt well yeah what roosevelt did whenever they threatened the new deal was he threatened to uh expand the court and then they rolled over and showed him their soft fleshy bellies and all that biden gets up there and does is say hey pal I know that I'm impotent and incompetent, but be nice. People are like, why don't I ever see any Biden flags? Well, it's like, okay, first of all, we're not in a, in a, in a cult where people are worship, worshiping their God, emperor, president with literal golden statues like it's the fucking Old Testament for one thing, buddy. And also for another, because <laughs> he's not great. He's not like an energizing favorite. It was uh, selected as in opposition to the other party's offer. It would be lovely to see... The Democrats actually pretend like they have any liberal policies or any leftward policies by actually doing something for anything once instead of just holding the threat of rights being taken away over everybody's head so that they can fundraise off of it. What what were we talking about? Morbius? <laughs> Gagarine. Gagarine. Sorry. Okay, go on. But I, I don't know. I just think it has like a way of being very realistic about like what's at stake and like how, you know, the government isn't for the people <laughs> in any practical way. Uh, so, like, people are just being left to die in the street. So, what are we going to do? And I don't know that the movie has anything to offer there other than just, like, respect for the people's ingenuity and, like, the heart of the community and, like, taking care of each other and, like, resilience. I don't know. I, I think it has, like, a very um, earnest hopefulness that um i think a lot of people would bristle at but i i kind of need it <laughs> like i needed some sort of like uh communal solidarity celebration the way the movie offered it all right and there was a third sci-fi film you said yes and i would say this is my favorite movie of the year so far that i've seen and one that's much angrier in its leftist politics so if you really want something to be um less sentimental than gagarine definitely recommend seeing neptune frost a movie that I don't know that I could fully describe, but I love it with all of my heart. It's set in Rwanda. It's about Colton miners and about non-binary 
people without a cultural foothold. So like one of the two central players is this guy whose brother dies while mining Coltan, uh, which is basically, you know, this like mineral that's basically used to power the world's cell phones. Okay. Um, and after his brother dies, he's just like lost and angry and drifts away from his mining job. And the other main character is this non-binary just traveler who is played by multiple actors of different gender presentations. And um, hmm. everywhere they go, they sort of just disrupt the electric signals that are around them. Like they have this sort of like, you know, third gender mystic kind of quality to them that like messes with computer binaries on top of gender binaries. Oh, okay. As they get into the Savannah, um, like they kind of have to escape violence um, from potential sexual partners that are basically chasing them out of the cultural like villages and like, um, you know, epicenters. So they basically wander out into the Savannah and other people are attracted to their energy. So like most centrally, the miner who has lost his community finds them in the Savannah and they form this like sort of love connection and then other dissidents and just sort of lost refugees with like no home find themselves in this like savannah almost cult that starts building like it's a little commune and through their like sort of communal anger about the authority uh which is in you know uppercase letters uh they sort of find a way to spiritually hack into the internet and spiritually hack into the very like cell phone objects that are made from the coltan that's like ruining their local villages. And it's this big celebratory, angry resistance to modern tech, but through finding this like spiritual connection to the internet through themselves, like, you know, like there's no way to functionally organize politically right now without using the internet. But, you know, most avenues of doing that are these like truly evil social media structures so they find a way to sort of poetically spiritually tap into that stuff outside of the system and it's so thrilling to watch and it's so hard to describe and i use the word poetry and poetic like intentionally because the movie is told almost entirely through song and through not exactly rapping not exactly spoken word kind of poetry but like something like that it has this like driving rhythm to it and it's all very musical it is a musical <laughs> in that way but not musical theater it's not rent it's like just this big expression of pure communal resistance through poetic art and i i was just completely floored by it okay all right an almost impossible movie to describe maybe even impossible one to recommend like i, I don't know that anyone would um I don't know that everyone would be able to, like, tap into it, but if you feel it, it, it hits you deep in the chest, you know? Okay. All right. I'm Did that intrigued. sound like anything? <laughs> I was interested until the song part, but that's just me and my biases. So I'm going to have to try it anyway and try to get over myself. I would describe it almost like the lyricism of Black Orpheus, like the way that, like, there is a real world narrative in that film, but okay. like it's so right. wrapped up in like the polyrhythmic, like just momentum of the music that's all around them all the time, you know, that it like sort of slips into this like 
subliminal realm, <laughs> like right below the surface of reality. Again, I cannot describe this in concrete terms because it's it's not doing anything concrete. Yeah, it's, it's not very a concrete like, movie. I can, I can yeah, I, I get you. It's like a dream world. I don't know if our listeners would understand, but I understand. <laughs> and, on the level, man. And our listeners are very smart people. They're beautiful, wonderful, lively, vivacious people. So I wouldn't put it past them. Not one morbid among them. We we welcome you if you are a morbid. <laughs> we welcome you with open arms. The coalition needs all. cigarettes don't like competition see so we associate a relatively innocuous drug with one that is extremely dangerous and the rags go along with it because they adore the dough from the ads i've had enough of this i'm getting off a gadget getting off a gadget won't help you getting off anywhere won't help you i've had an octopus squatting on my brain for a fortnight and i suddenly see that i am the only one that can help you it would be pointless to go into the reasons why but i've been worried sick about boils for a fortnight large boils small boils fast eruptors they're incurable all of them i know that and so does everybody else until they get one then the rules suddenly change with a boil on the nose there's a sudden overnight surge in face they want to believe something will work he knows that which is why he gets a good look in with a dying sells him hope you see but these boys would be full-time into real estate if anyone came up with a genuine cure for death good god this is a madman what do you know about God, you wirehead mick? This week, we are talking about the 1989 film, How to Get Ahead in Advertising. And yes, that title is a pun, as this is a movie that is about a man who is an advertising executive who is tasked with creating a new campaign for a boil cream, the stress of which causes him to basically spontaneously generate his own neck boil which grows to control and ultimately take over his life maybe um it stars richard e grant and part of the reason that we are watching this one is that this one is a uh, cat choice this was a cat suggestion and she started suggesting this all the way back when Loki came out, the Marvel show last uh, season or last year, because um, that first season stars a version or uh, stars Richard Grant at one point as a version of Loki, sort of a classic older Loki. And everyone kept talking about, uh, oh, Richard E. Grant is in uh loki richard grant oh my god what a win what an amazing piece of casting for this show and every time i read that i thought richard jenkins from six feet under (laughs) uh, among other things i guess most recently he was in the shape of water as the neighbor and i guess he was in nightmare alley but i was like oh richard grant uh the guy from um six feet under and cat was like no that's that's someone else richard grant is from how to get ahead in advertising have you never you know i get i get richard e grant's name mixed up with richard jenkins as well and then i also get richard jenkins visually mixed up with tracy letts i don't know what that is this podcast i like all three of them for their separate work we are impenetrable we are an impenetrable <laughs> group of people. Um, <laughs> but yeah, she was like, how to get ahead in advertising, how to get ahead in advertising. You've got to watch it, got to watch it. And she was like, at one point months ago, she was like, I don't, 
are you ever going to watch this movie? Are you ever going to listen to me? And I was like, I'm sorry, we've got to, we've got to talk about the Japanese remake of Cube, but then I promise <laughs> the next time it's my turn to pick, we will talk about how to get ahead in advertising. So I thought this movie was a delight. Brandon, what about you? I liked it a lot. I saw it before, maybe in college, and I kind of had tricked myself into, <laughs> had I seen this or had I seen its American remake? And the American remake does not exist. So I don't know what I was imagining in my memory or who could possibly have taken over for Richard E. Grant, who is the entire film. Oh, my like, God. That performance is the anchor. It's everything. He is giving so the energy of it, the vitality of it. The moment when he is at the beginning of the film alone in his office and he starts to do advertising pitches and he like puts on the Sato voice and I forget the care the name of the character that he gives to himself who's like this I'm a scientist but at night I'm a woman too and then later <laughs> later that same name becomes the thing that like his boil is repeating that his wife keeps hearing I'm gonna go ahead and say right now Brandon do you think do you think the boil really was like a separate thing I just want us to get this out of the way because I know what I think, but I also think that if I share it, that's also going to be like when you told us, told me while we were watching Diabolique that my interpretation was the most boring interpretation possible. I mean, I assume that's what you're going to go with this time as well. I don't know. I think it's ambiguous and I think it doesn't matter this time. I also didn't really think. I definitely don't think it matters. Yeah. I guess the question is, the larger question is like, what are they trying to say with like, him having two personalities. Yeah. Like, is one even really worse than the other? I don't know. Like, he's already kind of an asshole at the start of the movie. He's already, like, kind of an effet misogynist <laughs> at the first dinner party before the boil takes over, you know? Well, the boil, yeah, but the boil is, I don't know. I I loved that dinner party scene. I especially loved um, his wife's sort of poisonous friend who's like, I think men should bleed. It's like, yeah, girl. Right now, <laughs> I agree. And they're also like talking about like estrogen in the ocean, which I I didn't. God, it's like it's okay. <laughs> Several months ago, I was flipping through the television. I get a channel now that shows reruns of TV shows from like the eighties and nineties. Wings, obviously, Frasier, Designing Women, of course. But one thing that I and. I am like a connoisseur of nostalgia personally. I really like to watch things that are like, oh, this is from an older era. You know, we've talked before about how much I love Alfred Hitchcock Presents and like what you can glean about society based on its art from that era. And, you know, I'm watching Murder, She Wrote now. One of the hardest things to do that with is Murphy Brown, because Murphy Brown was quite possibly like the most, one of the most watched television programs in its era. But if you try to watch it now, it doesn't make any sense for a lot of a, a lot of it, because it's all very closely associated with the politics of the time in a way that's so zoomed in that if you're not looking at it with a very intimate knowledge of the specific political situation that is being discussed, it does not have any kind of relevance and does not make a lot of sense. It's topical. It's topical. Like, you know, whenever I was a kid 
And uh, they were showing reruns of Saturday Night Live from like the 80s and early 90s on Comedy Central during the day. When there was a political sketch, you know, you don't have to necessarily understand every in and out of the politics of what's happening to get a laugh out of it. That's not to say, you know, how Saturday Night Live is now. I'm not speaking to that. But I mean, like, there's a way to do political comedy that is zoomed out enough that it is applicable over time while being topical. And Murphy Brown was not that. But I did tune in and it was the start of an episode where Murphy Brown was interviewing a general played by William Sadler. And he was going on and on. She was, she was like taking him to task about the military budget. And just to hear William Sadler's general character repeat these canards about the need to maintain our borders and make sure that we're not subjected to the enemy and how it's important to maintain the military budget even in peacetime in exactly the same verbiage that you hear now. It was one of the most depressing and distressing things that had ever happened because I looked it up, you know, and that episode aired when I was two years old. And you can go a lot of your life without, with the understanding, sort of the theoretical understanding that as long as you have been alive, things have not changed for the better. And then something comes along and is like, no, here's actual concrete evidence that nothing has changed at all (laughs) your entire life. Everything is just as bad as it always was and always will be, except now things are worse because there are irreversible problems that we are completely that we politicize to the point of tying our hands about them i mean the political commentary of this movie in particular i think is supposed to not go anywhere as long as like corporate culture exists yes like he might be rambling about specific issues at that dinner party but like for the most part the whole movie is him talking and he's just doing it in that empty corporate advertising babble that like is supposed to not mean anything because you're supposed to appeal to like a large swath of people yes all at the same time and not say anything he says a lot of words in this movie but like maybe 10 percent of them actually mean anything and he's just rambling the entire time just raving like a lunatic and that's like how he talks himself into growing a new head <laughs> it's like he just drives himself to madness with this like corporate babble And that obviously has not changed in the, like, you know, what, 30 years since this came out. Like, that kind of talk is exactly the same now as it was in the late 80s. Yeah. Truly a distressing thing to witness how little has changed and how nothing has changed for the better. And that the constant need for capitalistic growth, not mercantilistic growth, not commercial growth, but specifically the form of mercantilism and the uh, that we call capitalism that just you know every single bit of it is about the exploitation of resources to the detriment of others with no you know it's like when we talked about um embrace of the serpent for our movie of the month last month you know it's people saying we will never deplete this the world is full of it and the constant ongoing realization that actually no everything is finite every single little thing except for human stupidity but i I, we're talking very seriously about a movie that is very 
very funny. <laughs> I laughed so much while watching this. It was so funny. There were notes that I made while watching it where I was like, okay, I like the way that in his, when he's in his office, the arrows are always pointing at him. He has a lot of 80s art that's mostly just like angles and arrows. And like even some of the advertising campaigns that we see don't make any sense. Like there's a poster behind him of somebody spreading toothpaste onto a toothbrush, but not onto the bristles. Like the bristles are pointed down and the toothpaste is being applied to the back of the toothbrush head. What a frustrating image. Yes. And that's kind (laughs) of this whole movie in a nutshell. Cause like there are points where, you know, he has like a floor to ceiling framed repeated images of the same arrow pointing in one direction or pointing in another direction. And at one point they're all pointed directly at his head. Like there's like a crown of arrows pointed at his head that are, that is, you know, an image that we see in this movie. I loved all of that. I especially loved, you know, there's a fearlessness in this performance that I think that we need to, to discuss because any other actor would at some point get self-conscious about how big and broad this performance has to be to elicit the feelings that it's trying to get. And at no point does Richard Grant look away. It's like the whole movie, you are playing chicken with him. Well, sometimes he's playing with raw chicken in the toilet. How how <laughs> lovely. How big, how bold, how beautiful. But yeah, I was thinking about like when I was trying to remember this non-existent American remake, like who the fuck was I picturing like running around slathered in mustard <laughs> yelling about their boil? Like who could possibly do that for however long this is, like maybe a hundred minutes and not just like annoy the hell out of you? Like, I guess the obvious answer would be like a, a Jim Carrey or something, but like that would get so grating so quickly. You said without being annoying though. Exactly. That would grate on you so bad. And I'm not saying that Richard E. Grant's not annoying in this. Like, he's definitely, like, wearing you down on purpose. But um, it didn't feel like babysitting a child or anything like that. It felt like, you know, when someone is talking themselves into a frenzy and just sort of, like, not hearing any input from anyone else in the room because their brain is just going 200 miles a minute. He was just doing that almost as an exercise to see how long someone can talk about a boil (laughs) without running out of steam. And he never does. Yeah. I loved the scene in the restaurant where he's having, okay, here, here are some absolute banger jokes that I adored. Get my wife on the line. And then when she rings through, what do you want? Yes, I know. (laughs) So good. So funny. No notes. Absolutely perfect. Great joke. I love when they're in the restaurant and She's talking about how it wasn't this bad when he had hemorrhoids, although they use the, you know, Britishism, which is piles. He's like, it wasn't nearly this bad when I had piles. And all of the other patrons are disgusted by them talking about their hemorrhoids at the lunch table, although he's obviously talking about his campaign for that particular product. Lovely, gorgeous, again, no notes, flawless. Don't think I, don't think I haven't noticed you noticing my box. My cardboard box, truly great, <laughs> fantastic, wonderful. Feel free to chime in with any any of yours. Uh, I really liked the one where he's trying to convince his wife that the boil is talking. And she says, I can see what you're doing. You're turning your head away 
to hide your mouth to voice the boil. And he's like, no, the boil's just waiting until I turn my head and then it talks. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was very so funny. So good. So good. Or uh, his doctor is like, have you been masturbating a lot? <laughs> and he's like, constantly, constantly. I have a boil on my neck. Yeah. What would you do? <laughs> uh, every moment. So good. So delightful. I'll say maybe the boil is real. Not that it matters. <laughs> But at first, at first, I was fairly convinced that it was a product of his imagination because, you know, it is only talking when other people are looking away. Like he's not he's not lying in that moment, which is that, you know, the boil does wait until he's like under the table or even like facing away from his psychiatrist <laughs> before it will say anything. And of course, it's like, OK, that's his mind creating a way to like, you know, um, have plausible deniability about this nonsense that he's doing. But man, it's so funny. It doesn't matter. I don't care. I loved it. This was such a great recommendation from Kat for me specifically because like of how much I personally detest everything about the advertising industry. <laughs> like all of it, how it functions in so, and in our society, advertising functions as like our one kind of universal art form which is disgusting right where like you know people recite to each other jokes from commercials where even if you and i are not watching the same program we'll probably be bombarded with the same material that is intended to get us to buy something and people bond over that. People sang baby back ribs for years. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not saying that that's always an evil thing to do. It's been years and years and years. Sometimes Kat and I joke about the Budweiser commercials with the frogs. It's never made either of us want or desire a Budweiser. But, you know, it's stuck that's in brand the brand awareness, though, baby. Yeah, exactly. And I say this as someone who watches an awful lot of Supermarket Sweep so much more than I ought to. It's I have a whole channel that just shows nothing but that now, and it's almost commercial free. And it's sickening to me how much I'll just default to that if I just need a little bit of background noise. And it's like, oh, yeah, I know those products. So as much as I'm opposed, again, none of us is immune to propaganda, including advertising. And this movie shows us that even the people who create it are not immune, that it can destroy their brains just as much as it rots our own. I remember in college watching that movie Crumb, the uh, Robert Crumb documentary. And there's this part where he's like in public and he's like kind of sneering at all the like uh, slack jawed yokels walking around who are all wearing advertisements for companies like, yeah. you know, Nike brand T-shirts or, you know, whatever band you want other people to listen to or know that you listen to it's like text on people's clothing like you're, you're like paying money to advertise for a corporation and i had a more cynical response to that at the time you know i i think he's kind of like a dipshit <laughs> for for his like uh superiority in that moment um now but i do think there's something about like how there's no point in your day really where you can turn 360 and not see advertising for something. Yeah. Like, the products in your home are already advertising their brands 
like in plain text on them for you to like then go out and get more of that stuff later. And it's so much more pervasive even now than it used to be, even when we were younger. Like, yeah, they're putting advertisements on boats at the beach. You can't even get out and go to the beach and be free of someone trying to sell you something. You know, when when I was younger and you got Windows 98, it came with a game of solitaire that you could play when you were bored. You can play solitaire on your computer. But now if you try to get an app for that, there's advertisements within the app for products when all you really want to do is just move some cards around to kill some time. Right. There's no aspect of our lives now that is not untouched by the attempts to sell you something. There's none of it. And I guess like the sort of thrust of the movie is like, how good is it for your brain to, for it to constantly be filled with that kind of chatter? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, you know, his job is to create that chatter and he just sort of loses the thread. Like he like slips into these different voices as he's imagining the ads that haven't been made yet. And he just kind of like loses track of his own inner thoughts. And it's just replaced with nothing but the babble and the chatter. And I guess my question watching it is like, is the boil even necessary? Like it's a great visual motif in the film. And I think it has <laughs> some real horrific impact. but like, there's not a lot of the on-screen boil talking to him. I don't know if it's like from a financial reason, like those effect shots probably are like the things that cost the most money in the movie. So they're used pretty sparingly, but they are shocking, but I don't know that they're a hundred percent necessary. Cause like, him talking a mile a minute is what's mostly horrifying about it. And the boil's almost like kind of fun, <laughs> you know, like that intrusion should be horrific to the point where like, if you look up the film on different platforms, like if you look it up on like Wikipedia or Letterboxd or whatever, it's not listed as a horror comedy or a body horror, which I think is kind of ridiculous. Like it fits in that genre pretty well for me. Like, How is it listed? A fantasy and a farce, which I guess... Yeah, I mean, accurate, but incomplete. Right. Like, to me, this feels no different than most Hen and Lauder movies, like A Basket Case or Brain Damage or something like that. Uh, as someone who loves those movies, this is this is much, this is much better, <laughs> in my opinion. Oh, I disagree with that. But those movies, those movies lean into those effect shots more. So I, I get it. I get why it's diminished in the genre like classifications. But it's almost so diminished that I'm like, do you even need it? Like, is Richard E. Grant just smearing himself in products and just raving and like running around um, and like transforming into the mustachioed, quote unquote, evil version of himself, which was already pretty evil to begin with? Like. That feels like it's actually 95% of what's going on. And the boil is like not really pulling that much weight. I don't, I don't know. I don't know that I agree. I, I think that the boil makes it for me. And I guess I will say, when you say Hen and Lauder, the first thing I thought of was Basket Case 3. So not, not even <laughs> Basket Case 1 or 2 or um, Brain Damage, all of which are great movies, but they're all much like leaner and meaner and a little grosser and cheaper. Whereas this is a movie that legitimately it looks like it could be on Masterpiece Theater. Like it looks like a piece of like British cinema art. And all British cinema kind of looks like TV. So a Masterpiece Theater is correct. 
I will say one of the best jokes that we we didn't mention yet is whenever he the, how the advertising is so infiltrated even into his home where he's like smearing mustard on the boil and his wife is like have you tried the english like the english mustard and he's like it is the english mustard and she's like no this is the dijon with the multiple herbs or you know the british pronunciation of herbs it's so good it's so funny let me tell you what i think is happening in this movie if the boil is not a real supernatural being okay this is a man who has a breakdown he psychosomatically gives himself a boil because he is working on a boil product, even though it is not a cure because there's no money in curing things. There's only money in offering the concept of hope of a cure. So as a result, he has a psychotic break where he gives himself the psychosomatic boil and it continues to get larger and larger because of his stress. And he externalizes his own feelings about it's like he he manages to heap upon this part of himself that he considers alien like it's it is his body but it's not part of him this concept of all of the evil parts of himself that he pushes you know the advertising mentality the one that hates trains the one that, you know, wants everyone to own their own cars and for there to be highways everywhere until there's nothing and nowhere you can go that's untouched <laughs> by capital. And he externalizes all of that into this boil, but then psychotically it reasserts its dominance. If you remove the possibility of the boil being an actual being, that's sort of what I see as mostly happening in this movie. I'm willing to go so far as to say it's possible that something more is happening, that it is like a real brain damage and in lauder thing. But there's something that's happening here that is horrifying and beautiful. And I I just loved this. I loved it so much. I guess what I'm saying is like there's like a um British like classiness that doesn't want to get mucked up the way that like Hen and Lauder's movies do, you know? Like, yeah, okay, yeah. It kind of keeps the boil at a distance. But that's fine because there's so much else going on that like it didn't need any more. And I'm not saying it should have lost it. Like I really like looking at those effect shots of that little face on his shoulder because they're fucking gross. Oh, uh, it's it's very yeah, it's very Belial. <laughs> I like that thin film of um skin that's like in one of the earliest shots of the the face because yes. it hasn't fully emerged yet. Yes, really upsetting stuff. Yeah. Really, really gross, horrible, amazing. And probably a testament to his performance that his rambling is somehow even more terrifying than the boil, though. Like, he really uh, outshines those effect shots. I, I love that the, the movie ends with this declaration that's like, yeah, this is the world you're living in. We're not here to propose a solution. Good evening. Get home safe. <laughs> It's not a movie in which there's any hope and there shouldn't really be either. You know, there's this huge part of like our discourse on film, which has been terminally Tumblr brained. Um, and I say that as someone who was on Tumblr constantly and in fact did allow it to inform many aspects of my own uh, discourse. But uh, there is a sort of terminally uh, Tumblr brained thing going on where we have been We've reached a point where we think a movie has to offer a solution or it has to 
makes a greater statement than just like, yeah, shit's fucked in order for it to be quote unquote, like a quality film. And that's not what's happening here. This movie is like, mm, I'm s- tough titties. I don't deal. If anything, he's like triumphantly ascended the mountain at the end. Yeah. He's like on top of the world. He's like, look at me. I have gotten everything. That's it. And so will every person who continues to operate within the system as in the role that I have, which is just to sell, 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 sell until your soul is gone and buy until you're poor. Well, next week on the show, we're going to talk about uh, more populist entertainment with leftist values. We're going to talk about Charlie Chaplin movies, kind of spanning from some of the later silent movies into the talkies he made um, once that, you know, silent era came to its conclusion. So very, like, uh, broad comedy with some, like, actual, genuine, good-hearted politics at the center of it. It's been a while. And in the meantime, uh, check out SwapFlix.com. I really don't... I haven't been writing that much lately because I've been sick. Uh, so maybe the next few days I'll have a backlog that starts rolling out. But um, maybe I did a better job describing Neptune Frost in text than I did vocally. you have to investigate on the blog to find out for yourself. All right. Good night, everybody. The sun.